0: Welcome to this podcast from the National Humanities Center. I'm Robert Newman, President and Director of the Center and your host for this episode. Today we're talking to Laurent Dubois, Professor of History and Romance Studies at Duke University, who is working this year as a fellow at the National Humanities Center. Laurent was previously a fellow at the Center in 2008-2009 when he was working on his book, The Banjo, America's African Instrument, which was published earlier this year by Harvard University Press. His work on this iconic instrument reveals not only a rich and diverse musical heritage, but also sheds light on how music connects disparate people and places. Welcome, Laurent. Thanks for having me. So in the book, you talk about how it's a biography of the banjo and how the protagonist uh, for the book is the instrument itself. This is rather strange to have a non-human protagonist. Uh, Could you elaborate on that?
1: Yeah, I mean this was a way that I, I finally got to the place where I was able to write this book and understanding it in that way, that the, the kind of the central character was this instrument and this instrument whose story touches on so many other stories but needed to be the kind of through line, right? So like a biography, we kind of keep returning to this one object. The complicated thing is that the object, of course, itself changes over time, obviously. Um, and just its constitution, its birth in a certain sense is one of the core mysteries that I try to address in the book. How did this thing uh c- come? To to emerge as it did, um, where, when, how, and then what? How does that tell us about its subsequent history?
0: And and you also talk about how, through studying the banjo, you we also come to an understanding of what an American is.
1: Mm-hmm. The reason, again, for writing this book as I did, which is that I decided to trace the whole history of the instrument. So at some point I thought, well, maybe I could just focus on its history in the Caribbean. But I, I thought that something would be learned by connecting all the, the whole arc of the story. And that is partly because the, the instrument is so iconic. It's been kind of constructed to be iconic. But it's also been constructed to be iconic in a ways that erases parts of its history. So the story in particular of how later uh, boosters for the instrument tried to deny or kind of erase its African-American roots is part of the core tension of it. So in a sense, it's, it's a very American story, both because the banjo itself has been so central to American culture, but also because it shows some of the ways in which uh, our ideas about race have, have led us to in some ways erase or forget parts of our history.
0: And you talk about this also as, as a study in, in transculturation –
1: Mm-hmm. Could you talk about what you mean by that? Right. Transculturation was a term, actually first term by Fernando Ortiz, who is a Cuban writer, uh, thinker, historian, anthropologist. And it's essentially it was a way to try to think about what happens when cultures really affect one another in this kind of long standing rather than acculturation, one culture to another. The ways in which Caribbean cultures in particular reshape Europe and European cultures reshape the Caribbean and Africa and the indigenous all combined So here what I'm trying to show is that this instrument in a sense embodies all of these cultural processes whereby partly lots of different African groups came together on the plantations of the Caribbean and and North America and had to kind of reshape their cultures and dialogue with one another. So just within the the community of the enslaved and then over time the way in which that leads to a whole whole other set of connections and dialogues um, between various cultures. I should just say that I think music is a particularly hard thing to grasp in the sense it kind of travels. You know, it can be absorbed and people can play songs they've heard from very different groups. And there's a way in which trying to keep you know, a hand, handle on music was always very difficult, which is one reason why I kind of kept coming back to the object itself that, that made the music.
0: Well, And the object begins as as uh, the earlier incarnations of the banjo are strings on a gourd. Exactly. And so... Your process of, of researching this instrument, which began as strings uh, on a gourd, what kind of interesting pathways did that take you?
1: The problem, of course, is that since this was a, an object basically built by enslaved people, um, their culture tended to not be that great interest to, to many of their owners and, and others. So the number of people who really paid a lot of attention to the culture of the enslaved, the objects they were making, was relatively small. So there's this a kind of archaeology, right? There's little bits and fragments here and there. So each of the fragments, textual or visual, become incredibly important. They're kind of this huge, huge clues. So the first task was just to try to gather every single fragment I could. And the next was to try to find a way to tell a story to connect those fragments in a certain way. And to me, part of the key there was to, to bring together the story of the Caribbean and North America, which is something that hadn't been done quite in that way, although Dina Epstein, the kind of founder in this field, had, had already turned to Caribbean sources. And I found that by at least when you put together all of the Caribbean sources and the North American sources, you could begin to, to tell a, a bigger story um, that hopefully makes sense. <laughs> I hope. So you're also
0: talking about how the history of America is also about Africa. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess you're, you're sort of taking off on W.E.B. Du Bois. Souls of, of black folk in, in doing that, and and also how he work, he talks about the sorrow songs mm-hmm. uh, in uh, in African American music. So how how does the banjo specifically demonstrate that for us?
1: One of the core arguments of the book, and it's sort of embedded in in the title itself, is that the banjo, and I call it actually the first African instrument. It's sort of meant deliberately as a kind of provocation, in the sense that. What it's doing is to sort of try to be African in a general sense, something that is only really necessary in the Americas, right? So this is an instrument that is built to connect across really kind of diverse, tremendously diverse cultures from Central and West Africa, for instance. And what it needs to do is to provide a space of music that's going to connect these people who are essentially thrown together on the plantation and to provide a kind of sense of connectedness with Africa in in the new world. At the same time, there's kind of a literal connection in the sense that to build the instrument, people are kind of going back to traditions from West or Central Africa. Um, Specifically, what I'm able to show in the early parts of the book is that for a variety of reasons, while in Europe, stringed instruments had come to be by the time of the 15th, 16th century, mostly built in wood, entirely in wood. Throughout Africa, you had a tradition of having gourds with a skin on it as a kind of resonator, as the body for a harp or a lute. This was something very widely shared, and so I argue that, in a sense, using that construction was, in a sense, a way of marking the kind of Africanness of the instrument. So there's a very concrete material link to Africa. At the same time, of course, this connects to the bigger story, one that Du Bois himself wrote about, which is the continuation of, of African dance, of African music across the generations and into the present day. So you also
0: write about how the history of black performance is tied to a history of blackface performance, Mm -hmm. and that becomes a central issue in the biography of the banjo and with the minstrel tradition, et cetera.
1: So can you unpack that a little bit for us? In the 19th century, starting a few decades before the Civil War, essentially, you get a a really a big change in terms of the history of the banjo, an instrument that had been almost exclusively played within uh, African-American or Afro-Caribbean communities, an instrument that was made within those communities with gourds, is taken up by first a small number of white musicians who learn how to play it from African-Americans and bring it to the stage. Really, New York City is where this all happens. And they become, um, sometimes they call themselves delineators. They they present themselves as kind of authentic representatives of African-American music who are white but have learned this tradition and they perform in blackface, drawing on a long theatrical tradition that's existed in England beforehand. And they create this new uh, form that becomes incredibly popular, basically the most popular performance tradition in the 19th century Americas, in which uh, it's it's a form sort of saturated with contradiction that has obsessed and troubled, you know, American historians for a long time. Eric Lott famously had a book called Love and Theft, that there's this kind of representation. On the one hand, it's a sort of a celebration of this culture, but done so in a way that is also um, immediately kind of excluded actual African-American performers, uh, making whites sort of the real authentic African-Americans through blackface, and also increasingly over time becomes a site for incredible racist stereotypes and is well known for that. Except for, of course, there's this interesting story after the Civil War when African-American musicians begin to perform minstrel acts, often themselves in blackface, and sort of transform that as well. There's a phrase that I cite in the book from a newspaper actually in Haiti where there was a blackface tradition that I, that I talk about in the book where a blackface performance is advertised as a person will wear blackface in order to approach the illusion of the natural which it kind of embodies. Mm-hmm. So there's a, everyone knows that it's fake. Everyone knows that this is not really what's happening, and yet everybody kind of participates in the fiction. And I think it's, it's for, of course, one of the most fascinating aspects of our culture and one that we live with still.
0: You also talk about how the banjo is, is important in the evolution of jazz music, which I found really surprising. Mm-hmm. So when I think about Miles Davis and I think about John Coltrane and, and the history of jazz, I don't recollect the banjo. Mm-hmm. So talk to us about that.
1: The banjo is really vital in New Orleans in the early days of jazz, um, and it is an instrument that then, in part, because a kind of a certain kind of New Orleans jazz later gets. Codified and touristified, and you know, becomes something that later jazz musicians are actually rejecting and moving away from. It kind of gets lost in there. But early on, before amplification, this is an instrument that can do a very uh, an important service, which is a stringed instrument that could kind of cut through a big ensemble. If there's brass, if there's drums, and very specifically, it could kind of carry in the holds of riverboats, where a lot of this music was first really played in, in large dances. So a banjo, as anyone who's heard one knows, especially these modern banjos, can be quite loud. and can kind of cut through. And so that was one of its the reasons for its ad- adoption. But of course, also, this was partly uh, an instrument that was tr- had been traditionally played in places like New Orleans and, and had, again, the symbolism as, as a kind of African-American instrument that I think was, was part of the story as well. So when um, James Reese Europe, who's an African-American composer and band leader, wanted wants to create kind of African-American orchestral music and performs it at Carnegie Hall. Um, One of the things he says is, you know, we have to have a sort of section of banjos. This is sort of ultimate African-American instrument. So this is what's going to make this music sort of African-American orchestral music in its its specificity. One of your claims in this
0: book is that you're also crossing the boundaries that still govern much of uh, history telling the way we do history or the way history has been traditionally done. So, can you talk a little bit about the boundaries that you are crossing and how you cross them?
1: Partly there's a, a pretty a kind of absurd, I mean, I shouldn't say absurd, but maybe overambitious temporal sweep. When I started re- realizing that this book, you know, there's stuff from ancient Egypt all the way to, uh, you know, last year or so. Um, there's a kind of really large temporal sweep, which um, was necessary in a sense in order to, to be able to tell the story of this object. The other is just the, the national boundaries. Again, I mean, historians, of course, many of are, are arguing for the need to not write within a kind of national paradigm. And because this is such a understood as such an American instrument, it was important to me to emphasize that actually all of our earliest uh, knowledge about the instrument and earliest examples are in the Caribbean, and that if it is American, it's only because it's kind of Afro Atlantic, um, and that the connections between these these cultural boundaries are are as important to the constitution of this, of this story. So finally, as I wrote, and this was, you know, the year at the, at the center allowed me to, to spend more time thinking about this, I guess I began writing this I I think I began writing it thinking really as a kind of cultural historian. I was going to use texts to kind of elucidate the story of this banjo and the symbolism. Over time, I felt increasingly like I really had to think about the music and sound as its own kind of archive in a certain way and try to at least put that into the story. So there's a way in which there's also a kind of attempt to cross some boundaries methodologically between history, musicology, ethnomusicology, sound studies um, as well.
0: And one of the examples that that I was fascinated by was uh, when you talk about the history of uh, an iconic song, Stephen Foster's O O Susanna, Mm -hmm. uh, 1847 song, and the influence of slave
1: ballads on those lyrics. Right, right. Uh, Can you talk about that a little bit? That was one of the more fascinating stories for me, which is, I mean, this was basically, it still is in some ways perhaps the most famous American song, right, ever. And to realize that in a way it was like so much of our music, a kind of refracted complex sort of echo of the slave experience that that was also hidden in a certain sense right that that in this song is embedded this particular experience of 19th century of America which was the breaking up of homes and among the enslaved and eastern coast to be sent west so this kind of westward journey that in the kind of heroic imagination of America is the story of kind of westward expansion was for African-American communities a whole different experience the story of traveling in slave coffles to towards the west and how the song kind of somehow manages to capture both without elucidating what's underneath and trying to trace out the way in which that song could emerge from that. It's, it seemed to me a particularly uh, symbolic thing. And in, in a sense, it's a microcosm of what, of the larger symbol that the banjo itself is, which is an instrument that, if we think about it at all, it's going to tell us what, what I argue is kind of the central true story of our history, which is this profound influence of Africa and African-American culture that has shaped and reshaped um, all aspects of our, of our popular culture. But actually, when most people look at the banjo, that's that's not what they see, right? It's not what they see in here. So I'm kind of throughout trying to suggest that that history is really there, and it's actually one of the reasons why the banjo has continued to draw people so much. But obviously, hopefully, knowing it and knowing it in all its complexity is better allows us to better appreciate the instrument. And your current project,
0: the one you're working on this year at the National Humanities Center, is a biography of Catherine Dunham, uh, a human protagonist. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell us a little bit about Catherine Dunham and also how uh, your work on the banjo might have led you to this project?
1: While I was writing about the banjo, of course, I was often uh, constantly encountering and thinking about dance because the music was often, um, you know, almost always linked to dance in one way or another. And it just, it's sort of, that was part of what, what led me to this. Dunham is a figure who's fascinated me and a lot of other people for a long time. And I I really still don't know what shape this sort of writing about her is going to take. I think it will have to be reconfigured in a way that as this project was, but as with the banjo, her life kind of shines a light on all these kinds of questions about Haitian culture, American culture, Afro-Atlantic dance performance, what it means and I suppose, as as in the case of both books, um, trying to think about the ways in which performance cultures sort of shape the way we see, the way we act, the way we want to see one another, which which I think requires an approach that that in some ways a little different than one that's more on on the textual angle, because performance has so many multivalent, you know, impacts and effects. So she's also a figure who just wrote really beautifully about these questions as well. So it's kind of an interesting, it's a different one. In in the banjo, I was always trying to find fragments and use them. Here, there's this this sort of amazing archive of thoughtful reflection on this as both a practitioner and an anthropologist that I'm kind of delving into, so...
0: We've been talking to Professor Laurent Dubois from Duke University. His book is The Banjo, America's African Instrument. And thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning in. Please join us again for another podcast from the National Humanities Center. Thank you, Laurent.
1: Thank you.